this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. What's going on, everyone? Before we start this week's reef therapy session, I just want to let everyone know that in a month, August 6th and 7th, we're going to be hosting Reefstock Australia for the first time in three years. Now, part of the Reef Builders team will be out there, and we cannot wait to see our Australian reefing family again. We look forward to visiting with all the manufacturers, seeing some new products, checking out all the awesome Australian corals, giving away a lot of prizes in the raffle and hosting some great speakers for you to learn more about reef aquariums as a hobby and the industry. So make sure to go to reefstock.show for more information and we hope to see everybody out there. Reefstock Australia, August 6th and 7th. What's going on, Mark? Uh, prepping for a trip. So doing a little multitasking. Uh, giving up going? on my... Uh, Huh? I'm going up to Maine to do a little backpacking. Okay. All right. Um, was hoping to get my basement tank in a state of goodness before I left, but I'm going to have to give up on that dream. But the upstairs tank is rocking, so, you know, got to celebrate the, the wins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is going to be the probably less <clears throat> reef therapy session for a little while because I'm going to Australia for Reefstock Australia in Sydney, uh, August 7th and 8th. Uh, go to reefstock.show for more information if you live in New South Wales or Sydney. Um, but after that, I'm going to New Caledonia. That sounds a lot cooler than Maine. No offense <laughs> to anybody in Maine. I'm excited to go to Maine, but given the choice. <laughs> no, you can have fun anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, but um, this is kind of a long overdue honeymoon because I got married the early parts of the pandemic and we're like you know what we'll just hold off on all the celebration but uh now it's go time nice. very nice well this so, topic uh, for today is perfect for me because i'm uh i'm struggling with uh, a little bit of this myself right now so it'll be good to talk about <clears throat> i don't think there's any repository for like every single tip and trick in the book on how to deal with unwanted growth of algaes Mostly algaes. I think we'll touch on cyanobacteria and, and um, dinos a little bit. But those are kind of like different beasts. Um, yeah. But we'll touch on them a little bit. Um, but, man, when I – we have a lot to get through. And you and I love to take some sideways uh, kind of tangents. So we're definitely – we're just going to drill right in. And every time I see someone post up on a local group or forum about algae issues – I'm just screaming at the screen. The first thing is turn down the lights. Just turn down the lights. You don't need them. Whatever brightness you have it set at, just reduce it. That's not going to eliminate the algae, but that's kind of capping it off at the knees. And you see this a lot too with like freshwater and saltwater fish only tanks. I'm like, turn the light off. Turn off the light and you won't have any algae and it's gone. Easy, the easiest fix in the world. And the, um, the, the halfway point for a reef tanks or a marine invertebrate fowler or whatever, just reduce the light. 
you know, uh, reduce the intensity, reduce the photo period, and or just turn down your your whites or your and your reds or just turn those off completely because you can keep corals in pretty dim blue light for a very very long time and that's what i have to say about lighting <laughs> that's what i have to say lighting relative to algae what do you think about that yeah you know anyone that's into freshwater planted aquariums you know you've got the low-tech low-light setups and then you got the high light high-tech setups where you've got a supplement with co2 right <clears throat> and the way i always viewed it and somebody's going to call me out that i have it wrong but you have to supplement the co2 to in order to allow the more complex organisms the plants right that you're trying to grow to actually compete with microalgae right <clears throat> that can reproduce and grow very quickly whereas in a low light type of scenario you shift that competitive a angle over to the slower growing plants. And in a reef aquarium, I think lowering your light output uh, means that the corals will be fine. And uh, you run into a situation where you make it less competitively advantageous for, for especially for microalgaes and the, you know, like the green microalgaes and the turf algaes. Um, that just don't have as many limitations on their growth to suck up all those nutrients and take advantage of all that, you know, photo energy. So I'm with you on 100% on that one. And if um, we're, it's, I think it's important to um, outline that there's several different species of filamentous green hair algae. Enteromorpha is a, uh, you know, a common one. Bryopsis is another one that grows a little bit more like feathery. It's kind of the one that's easier to describe uh, verbally. And Entromorpha, which is a little bit more kind of usually lower lying and kind of turfy algae. But um, it's not the one that really causes like hair algae problems. Most of those are going to be uh, in the Derbesia complex. And we're not going down to the species level. Those are just yeah. the genus level. But, you know, lighting is the main energy source. And it, 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 it kind of surprises me to this day that there is a coral acclimation mode in all of our LED lights. But there isn't a new tank lighting mode, Right like an Instagram filter, it just pop up and it, you know, for the first month or three months or whatever you designate would make the light bluer and dimmer and shorter than what you would normally run. And I feel like, I mean, I think like that's 50% of the battle right there, especially when you're starting a new tank or you're having a, a nutrient imbalance because something happened or your tank is new, uh, reduce the intensity reduce the photo period and make the light bluer overall. It's very hard to grow good groves and fields of green hair algae under strictly blue light that's running for eight hours at like 50%. Uh, that, I think it bears repeating, reduce your lights. That should be the first trick. You know who had that right early on uh, was Garf, uh, Sally Joe, and I, f I forget uh, her husband's name, Leroy? Or Leroy. No? Yeah. Sally Joe and <clears throat> Leroy Headley. 
They had the uh, bulletproof reef method, and this was back in the day where they were there were LEDs weren't a thing, and they were advocating for affordable reefs. So they were always pushing like the normal output fluorescent lighting. Normal but, output fluorescent lighting with reflectors, vitalites, right on top of the water of a very shallow aquarium. Yes, and they advised that during the initial, you know phase of the tank to only run the actinic bulbs um yep and their argument was you know it'll let coralline spread right and coralline you know coralline i know you don't like coralline but you know i where love coralline, coralline algae <clears throat> i just don't want it in my tanks yeah if um, i could get it to just grow in the rocks that would be dope but yes. you don't get one without the other right it'll grow on your on your back wall, which you don't like, it'll grow on your power heads and, and crust yes. everything. So no, I do love me some Desmophyllum, but uh, I only want it in one spot. But yeah, I mean, I think their argument was, you know, give the competitive advantage to coralline algae, let that spread. Where coralline grows, turf is not going to be able to get a good foothold. And uh, and then you can start turning on the whites, right? Uh, so similar sort of argument i think they were more focused on the coralline success and less on the not stimulating the bad algae growth but um still same they they were you know on target in terms of advice so yeah can can we say it one more time i feel like this is 50 percent of the battle if you have algae problems or you have a new tanks or some kind of imbalance just occurred where your skimmer just overflowed or a fish died and you didn't catch it or you went out of town and something happened your tank got algae covered we're gonna say it one more time for the third time for posterity reduce your intensity reduce your photo period and make your lights bluer turn down your whites turn down your warm whites turn down your reds any more to add on the on the lighting end of the algae control issue the only counterpoint I would say to that is if you're, and we're, I know we're going to talk about this later, but just if you're thinking about it already as a listener, is when you're talking cyano and dinos, <clears throat> which aren't technically algaes, um, it may not help as much. I see a lot of folks fighting dinos suggest turn your lights blue, and so maybe it works for them. Um, but in those situations my 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 take is you want some of the green guys to show up right so we would both uh, take green hair algae over dinoflagellates right any day of the week <laughs> yeah. over cyanobacteria which is easily treatable with any wide yeah. range antibiotic yeah. yes please <laughs> so yeah it just it goes it bears repeating that we're speaking mostly about true algaes right because there are known treatments for cyanobacteria, and it's not a big deal. And the dinoflagellate issue is kind of a new one, and we've discussed it at length throughout other sessions of reef therapy. But, you know, after the lighting, and which is a big part, the most, the second most important thing you can tackle, and it's probably the angle that everybody kind of approaches uh, hair algae problems with is nutrients. Do you want to tell the uh, the patients about how I sent you this note and you had to listen to my super long text messages <laughs> with everything? Yeah, I so I usually uh, fit in some kind of exercise between when my work day ends and when we meet up to do these sessions. And um, 
<clears throat> Jake will usually start penning down or, you know, Apple notes and text messages, you know, some of the ideas or some of the stuff that uh, are good talking points for these podcasts. And, um, and I'm running and I'm, I'm like two miles into my run and, you know, I've got my Apple earbuds in and it Siri lets me know I got a text message from Jake and it's like, would you like me to read it? And I'm like, yeah, read the text message. And then it's like two pages of uh, algae control advice <laughs> going into my ears for the next mile. Uh, I had to laugh because it was actually quite entertaining because it gave me time to just think about each talking point while I was running. But uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. So I tried to, to to put these in order, and we're talking about nutrients, and the biggest nutrients can be phosphate, nitrate to a lesser degree, but it doesn't help when it's really high. Um, silicate is one that we used to talk about a lot more, and there were specific RO membranes you could purchase that had a higher rejection rate of silica. And the other one that is becoming known in the aquarium hobby as a important element in reef aquarium chemistry but not so much as a fuel for for algae is carbon dioxide right and so if you it's just like fire right for fire you need fuel you need heat and oxygen you take any one of those out or reduce it significantly you don't have fire right and so i feel the same way about algae you reduce the light or you reduce nutrients or you reduce the co2 you don't get algae right but if you can tackle all of these things um, a little bit uh, you will make significant headwinds and so man the class i mean i just got a message from like a long lost friend a couple weeks ago about a, about a tank that become a just a grove of hair algae growth and she asked me what to do and i'm like well first thing it was really long and silky and flowy i'm like first thing is just suck it out just suck out as much as you can do a water change and you know a hose will help having some rigid tubing will also help. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but there was an aquarium company that made a little mark on the aquarium hobby for a little while. I think it was Kong. It was just called Kong. And they had like a really unique uh, Kalkwasser doser. And they had a, um, it was basically like a power head, which had like a, didn't have an impeller and it would wind up the hair algae like spaghetti. <laughs> oh, wow. Do you remember that thing? I don't, but I remember some people doing it with like toothpicks and stuff yeah yeah i you know i do that method a little bit more in my freshwater tanks that's where i tend to have a little bit of staghorn algae growing and so for me like algae is more of a uh, something that I combat my freshwater tanks and my saltwater tanks but the first thing ma'am do water change and remove detritus don't just don't just remove pure water. Find the concentrations of funk. Detritus is always going to build up somewhere in your tank, and especially in your sump. You know, even with an automatic filter roll, there's always going to be like a little overflow from the emergency drain or a little bit of side flow from the automatic filter rolls or same with your filter socks as they get clogged up. And I know there's some reefers who just have this weird flex of saying, oh, I've never done water changes. And usually their tank looks like it right but the sump just gets totally ignored right um until you, the, it, people put a lot of, of attention on their sump when it's brand new 
but and they want to show it off and all sparkly and clean but they don't even put a light on it and then over time there's a lot of buildup that happens inside of there underneath your filter sock compartment inside your protein skimmer right you can't get everything you'll get detritus in there so i think my first piece of advice is change like concentrated amounts of water really targeting the tritus where it's building up in your tank and in your filter compartments and the overflow box don't forget the overflow box man you'll get like inches deep with detritus back there yeah so like hmm. my take on nutrients and if we're talking nutrients like silicates limiting those if you're having just non-stop diatom blooms okay sure i get that uh, but you know, that's usually a temporary problem that goes away on its own. Um, cause, uh, diatoms have a, a knack for just blowing themselves out of existence in a way, not out of existence. Like you, if you put water under a microscope, you know, of an old tank, you're going to find diatoms, but I mean, they just sort of crash on their own. Right. Um, I do notice with diatoms, the CO2 thing, uh, particularly, the sort of traditional method for some of the brown simple algaes as well as diatoms was um, dosing Kalkwasser and just spiking your pH a bit. You know, not, not to a deleterious effect to your corals, but just getting, starting to run your pH a little bit high, higher than normal. And that, I've seen that really knock some of those simple things down. In terms of fixing an algae problem by fixing and I know Richard Ross has talked about this quite a bit too, and he, uh, especially around phosphates, but just fighting an algae problem by reducing your nitrates and phosphates, I don't, I never had any success with that, except for the fact that uh, when I first experimented with carbon dosing back when it was just vodka dosing and there was no commercial products, the other things that stopped growing were my coralline algae, right? And uh, my corals got lighter and so it's like I'm not only limiting the algae from these building blocks, right? But I'm limiting everything else too. Um, however, if your nitrates and phosphates are through the roof or you've got latent phosphates that are accessible by turf algaes in your rocks, for example, I think then sort of bringing them back down to earth, you know, bringing them back to reasonable values does can, help. Can you put... And I also think... Up? Can you throw out some numbers? Yeah. I don't really have a good idea of a number because you, when you hear about p different people's phosphate and nitrates and numbers, um, I've seen really beautiful tanks with different numbers, right? But I mean, absolutely. Um, it's all about finding that balance and the equilibrium, right? You can, yeah. but if you're battling algae, that is kind of your your primary objective. And right. yes, if you reduce the nutrients, you're going to reduce everything else. And phosphate is a more uh, lower hanging fruit to tackle than nitrates because your nitrates build up, you know, uh, 10 times more. So let's just throw out some numbers, you know, 50 ppm can be totally... I'd say two, I'm, I'm going to say like some kind of upper limits for a healthy reef tank of about this is really being generous, right? Very liberal, like one to two ppm phosphate, and right? Like Fifty to eighty ppm nitrate. My takes run zero 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 zero, right? But right. if you limit it 
and then you cut it back and you get the algae under control, you can get back to those numbers, but not have an algae bloom. But you have to employ some of these other things that we're going to discuss earlier as far as like finding that balance in your tank and your corals and your fish population. Yeah, I. one way to look at it is um, if you bring it, like I'll just pick magic numbers, right? If you get your nitrates from 80 down to 10 parts per million and you get your phosphates into a more reasonable range, I think those are byproducts of, oh, I'm going in there and I'm making my aquarium conditions um, better. You know, not only better for uh, reducing the rampant growth of algae, but better for corals, right? Because I do feel like there's got to be a point where phosphate becomes rather poisonous to calcification. Um, we all know that nitrates is the least toxic thing to fish compared to nitrites and ammonia, but at elevated levels, it does start to not be so good, right? So I feel like... Um, and I don't want to jump the gun, but I love the word that you said about going medieval. You know, just <laughs> if you're getting the in section. there and you're siphoning up out all the detritus and you're going in there with a toothbrush and you're manually being an herbivore, right? You're going in and you're harvesting the algae and you're just kind of giving your tank a, a tune up and you're and then you just stay on top of it. I think that your nutrients are going to start to go down. But um Again, personally speaking, I've never had much luck fixing an algae problem with GFO um, <laughs> uh, or, um, like I said, carbon dosing seemed to be really effective at curbing nitrates, but... Um, Getting I that could, last little bit of phosphate out from any form of carbon dosing. I think Nopox is one of those really good ones because I know from like 10 years ago that they put some cofactors in there to inhibit yeah. bacterial blooms from that particular carbon. Um, but it, it's really great getting the nitrates down and it's just a lot more effort to get the phosphates down. Um, but after the water change, you know, the next thing that comes to mind is making sure your protein skimmer is operating optimally. Right. And the, f the natural tendency is to think that is mostly for removing nutrients, right? Skimming out the organics and the proteins of your tank. And yes, that's also important, but a properly functioning protein skimmer is really going to help to degas the water and get more of that CO2 out of the tank. And it, you know, keeping your pH up and your alkalinity up is going to uh, remove a lot of carbon dioxide, but it's also going to, if you increase your alkalinity, you're going to shift the balance of the carbonate cycle um, more in favor of having less car free carbon dioxide. This is the kind of the key word. So if you keep your pH above 8.2 at a normal al alkalinity of like seven to nine degrees of carbonate hardness, that's just one less thing for the algae to grab onto. And that might be one of the best things you can do, you know, it's funny actually in saltwater, you have to go the other direction. You have to make it more acidic to reduce algae growth. And so it's just funny that in a saltwater tank, oh, you, you mean fresh water? Yes, fresh water. Yeah. You make it more acidic to reduce algae growth. But in a saltwater tank, you want to make it more basic because there's less carbon dioxide available. And, um, Oh God, I had, to, I had a point to, to finish, that up, finish that up with. Um, but it will just help to just knock back. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Is it'll help knock back the free carbon dioxide available to hair algae. And this is one of those things 
you can't sell a product for man i really feel like the reef aquarium industry and this might be a whole session in the future the reef aquarium hobby and industry is being the hobby is being led by the industry right if you can't sell some somebody something to reduce the free carbon dioxide inside their aquariums then why even talk about it right but you don't you don't have to worry about making free carbon dioxide unavailable to the symbiodinium inside the you know the zooxanthellae inside of your corals because they can just get that from the coral right right so if you reduce it from the water your algae your symbiodinium zooxanthellae inside the coral they can still get it and they still get some from uh bicarbonate at, at higher ph ph's and so this is one of those kind of little talked things because it doesn't it's not nearly as lucrative as selling someone an algae scrubber or media reactor and you know the recurring sales of of whatever phosphate media you want to use but i you know getting your protein skimmer in peak working condition is going to remove some of the low hanging fruit some of the heavy proteins some things that are just nastifying your tank but it's also going to help a lot more in degassing your aquarium and pulling air in from outside that's a conversation that more like the stickheads talk about you know the acro guys as far as like getting the corals to grow faster but i just feel like it's good basic practice to keep a high ph and pull in fresh air from outside a room where people are hanging out in yeah and <clears throat> i mean obviously when you add cockwasser it does a bunch of different things but um spike in the ph with calc and or just you know incorporating some calcwasser dosing not so much to tackle your alkalinity demand but just to to you know say okay well i was running at 8.3 and now i'm running at like 8.4 right which is exponentially higher um i have successfully beaten certain blooms that way and i wonder if it's the um co2 angle versus like oh it's precipitating phosphate or you know something else um and even probably um, a little bit of both i think it's julian's algae book shout out to his book he actually brings that up on as a treatment for some of the algaes in that uh guide he used to i don't know if it's out of print these days or not but anyway um you so know, yeah i agree book, with you that's one book that i don't have but when i was coming up with this list of all the things that i know what to do i pulled out the modern coral reef aquarium the reef aquarium and a couple other more obscure volumes and um both the modern coral reef aquarium and the reef aquarium volume three specifically talked about how a um, depressed alkalinity will contribute to algae growth but Again, I feel like the industry is leading the hobby by trying to sell a media reactor or an algae scrubber or all these different treatments where it's like, you know, just add a little bit more buffer. Add, you know, start dosing a little bit of calcwasser. You'll make some of that CO2 less available. And yeah. there again, it's just like every other thing. There's not one silver bullet. There's a couple of silver bullets that we'll mention at the very, very end, but those are kind of like a last resort. And if you do those things, those silver bullets, but you don't have the proper practices in place, you're just kind of doomed to just going back into the cycle where the algae will just come back. Um, yep. But as one of the topic of low hanging fruit, you know, as far as reducing the lighting, you can also reduce your feeding. If you are human and alive and listening to this podcast right now, I guarantee you, you are feeding your fish more than they need. That's just a fact. 
right? I, I, I feed my fish just such a small amount, just enough to keep their belly full. And some of my, some of the fish grow slower, like the larger fish that I don't get as much food. The smaller fish tend to grow a little bit faster, but reduce your feeding. You know, I don't know how many times I've been to like a, a reef aquarium shop and I've seen their like frozen food slop where they just pop like squid and shrimp and and oysters and sh and squirt a bunch of stuff in it and they just feed that all day long to all the fish and all the displays. I don't feed my shrimp without rinsing it. Like brine shrimp is kind of clean enough. It's not really oily, so you don't have to rinse brine shrimp or blood worms or live black worms. Um, but my cis shrimp in particular is really oily, and that is going to break down and contribute to your aquarium. It's also going to shut down your protein skimmer sometimes for like six hours if you just pop a basic cube of mysis without rinsing it. So I put all my mysis, when I do feed mysis, it's about once a week or more often for like some new introductions. I put it all into a, a, like a taller glass and I rinse it out in fresh water. Right. Normally you wouldn't do that, but I found that it sinks just fine. <laughs> it is already a freshwater shrimp. So rinsing in freshwater doesn't change its density so much. And uh, I'll just rinse it once or twice and just let all the good food particles settle. And then you have like this pinkish, orange, opaque fluid that you would just never add to their tank if you weren't feeding the fish. So reducing your feeding rinsing your frozen food um, really helps and cutting back on coral feeding right if your coral like we we kept and grew corals for so long without ever feeding them right your corals are not going to starve ever unless they're nps corals when you stop feeding them right so you could just suspend that feeding and then don't give me started on these so-called phosphates free coral foods because like if it doesn't have phosphate it's not really food <laughs> yeah, sort of the building block of life, right? Yeah, just so. just just maybe, just maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's what astrobiologists kind of look for is like hints of phosphate. Is there phosphate and, there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, definitely cut back on the broadcast feeding. I know it helps your coral, but unless you're a coral farmer or you're trying to spawn corals, you're not going to really see a huge difference from limiting or suspending your your coral feeding especially the broadcast feeding yeah again i think the goal is to have a more tightly organized nutrient web in your tank right so if you're the dump truck that's dumping in a bunch of nutrients you're not helping the cause right um it's sort of where like scrubbing the nutrients out to me long term may help but it also may put you in dino cyano zone or it may impact the other organisms in the tank um, but I feel like there is something to be said for import and export right like having that skimmer tuned really well uh, Dude, be honest the... with yourself like are you letting that neck get gunked up and then just staring at it for two weeks before you actually clean it out or you know um just for fun for two weeks man run that skimmer wet as a hell where you got to empty it every day concentrated water change ben johnson yes exactly um i'm doing that on my basement tank right now and you know because i've got a bit of a dino issue and 
it's funny. It's like it's it's skimming out the dinos at night. You like, I'll I'll empty the cup and it's like, oh, there's not much for me to remove, man. And then when the dinos get into that more free swimming zone, I come down in the morning, and it's just a cup of brown, fishy dino smelling goo. In the you know? morning, you can smell it before you see it, right? Yeah, yeah. You can smell that marine ocean smell. Um, man, you know, as I we're talking about this, I feel like there's so many old school tricks that we've already nailed down, mm-hmm. right? Nutrient export. That's a word. That's a combination of words I haven't heard in a really long time. The whole reef aquarium hobby was based on input and output, import and export, right? Nutrient export was an important term in the reef aquarium hobby for so freaking long. So yeah, it's all about that balancing that nutrient export. Um, uh, along the same lines, you know, if you're having algae problems, using an automated filter roll is really helpful because just like wet skimming it's just getting all that stuff out before it can build up and it's even catching those algae spores but if you're using filter socks just change those or clean those two or three times a week instead of once a week or every two weeks you know it's kind of like really fundamental stuff and then we've talked about this a little bit but uh, create a little bit more of a manual storm mode Right with the power head. If you're having algae issues on a new tank, and that's called the uglies, right? That's just kind of like the early stages, and then diatoms tend to take care of themselves. But if you have an older tank that is having a persistent algae problem, and you've already kind of hit some of the low-hanging fruit, you know, and if you have got some classic hyperporous Pucani wild live rock with nothing but pores to catch all the detritus, you need to get in there. Because your water flow can only do so much. You know, we used to talk about reef tank ecology a lot more. That word is gone, stricken from the reef aquarium vocabulary. And you went to school for ecology, so you understand it's just the the whole of the system and how it functions. So, yeah, you want to have good, proper water flow for your corals, but you want to have a little bit extra and consider how that flow is being driven to your overflow to kind of get it down to your filtration zone. So if you have just barely enough to make your polyp sway, that might not be enough to constantly export uh, the nutrients right and we've talked about this also um one of my newer tricks which is not that new is you know once in a while about once a year i will do the storm mode and then i will also add either a regular air stone or a wooden air stone to a tank and turn the whole thing to a protein skimmer because that air can trickle through the really um, porous rocks and just elevate just funk and crap that's been stuck inside for over a year and i'm we're methodical at the refilter studio as far as like keeping every tank just kind of feeling like it's three to six months old right once the growth kind of the growths get past a certain point we're like all right we need to roll up our sleeves and kind of get in there so um yeah, you know, you could do water changes, have a good protein skimmer, knock back the lighting, knock back the CO2. But if you have this, this huge reservoir of nutrients in your rocks or in, in any kind of sand bed that's just constantly leaching out, you know, you're just swimming upstream. It's not going to work. Yeah, and that's that. I mean, if you haven't, if you... If you find yourself with an algae-ridden tank, that goes back to that going medieval that you said in your notes, right, is be the herbivore, remove as much as you can, do a little bit of that daily, um, and and create those storms. Um, one thing that I'm 
I don't know, the verdict is out that I'm sort of tinkering with is some homemade marine snow, right? And not marine snow, the, the, the term of uh, the flocculence that corals are, are capturing, but um, uh, basically like some, I think it's Coralizicht makes like a snow product that's uh, good for clarifying up a tank, right? And it's just calcium carbonate powder in water. Mm-hmm. And so um, I saw people experimenting with that, and I'm trying that out on this tank where I create that storm, and it's really cloudy, just gunk floating around, and then I dose a little bit of this calcium carbonate, and that becomes another binding agent in the water to pick up like things that might be a little too small, uh, and then let the filter roll and the skimmer pick it up. Um, so that's an awesome point, and with or without the marine snow, you would be shocked at looking at your tank then creating one of these storms with or without the air bubbles and letting it just filter out through a filter sock or automatic filter roll, how much clearer it will get after you create this condition. Yeah. It's, it's quite surprising because we do it all the time and man, stuff clears up really fast because you have a lot of particles in the water and they'll stick to each other with or without a flocculant it makes it easier for mechanical filters to pull them out. And you don't have to use, the other thing I was going to point out too is if you want to get in there with a brush and a hose, right, you don't have to do a water change to uh, leverage the power of a siphon, right? Because another thing that I've done a million times is I get a really small micron filter sock, I clip it in on the inner wall of my sump, and then I just siphon into that filter sock, and then I just go to town on my tank, right? Mm-hmm. And you can do that daily, right? Like you may not want to mix up fresh salt water and do daily water changes, but you want to get a lot of this crap out, and you want to go at the rocks with a rough brush and all that crap, and then siphon out whatever you dislodge. You can do that every day for like, three weeks straight and you're just again and and keep in mind that the algae that you're harvesting up has all of this stuff that it needs to grow and it's you know like like not just phosphates and nitrates right but it's so you're exporting right so you're you're also removing in that biomass the very things that if those things broke down would make those things available for future growth so it's um it's really easy to do and it's really quick. And I mean, I've been on work conference calls where I, uh, you know, just real quick did it for like five minutes and I'm talking and nobody knows what I'm doing and done. So, so I don't, I don't get that much, uh, hair algae growth primarily. So let's, uh, two things. One, it's going to be really hard to have an algae bloom, like an algae infestation in a tank without a sand bed. I mean, that is, like I know you like it, I know it looks pretty, but it's maintenance and we've talked about that. So I feel like reducing or removing your sand bed is better than siphoning it out. It's just gonna trap funk and it's gonna trap spores and aptasia and hair algae. So that's one of the big things. But just like you were talking about some of the manual removal, I don't have so much hair algae, but you know, my emerald crabs are slow and they will knock back some bubble algae growth. But over a six month to a 12 month period, man, there's a couple of spots they can't hit and I will suck it out 
you know, directly with an actual water change in a bucket, or just like you mentioned, use some kind of mechanical filter, either a filter sock or kind of a mesh sock, um, and just kind of remove those because your herbivores can't get everywhere. You know, they just, right. they just can't get to every single spot. You got a little light bleed into your overflow box or right at your return nozzle. Those are spots you just have to hit them. You know, your fish aren't want to, they don't want to like beach themselves to try to get a little bit of turf algae on the outflow. And you can, you can tell because I know you've seen this and I know many of the patients listening right now to the session of reef therapy will have noticed when you turn your flow off, some of your, your herbivores, they'll go to the nozzle because they yeah, don't have to fight your, anymore. Yeah, uh, or your, like, your stream pumps or your gyro pumps, like, if they're turned off during a water change, your tanks go to town, right? They're like, Ooh. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, some new real estate. But I, I want to save the herbivores for last section and keep focusing more sure. on the nutrients. And so I'm a big proponent of just make it easy on yourself, remove the sand bed. And now it's time for your spiel on how an algae scrubber is going to basically concentrate that undesirable algae into a place where you can more manage it. Tell us about the algae scrubbers, a.k.a. refugiums. I, so I'm a huge fan of both algae turf scrubbers. Uh, I love me some Walter 80 books. I have a... I have an original Inland Aquatics turf scrubber that I, I cannot get rid of just because it's just a piece of nostalgia for me. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've said it before on previous podcasts that for me, my tanks sort of lock in when I'm actually growing some algae somewhere. I don't know why that is. I don't see how... Um, I don't, I don't see it as a way of out-competing the algae uh, for nutrients because you got to have nutrients to grow the algae in your turf scrubber or refugium, right? So I, I think I, I, I've thought about this so long. Like part of it is, is it, you know, that these algaes release terpenoids that inhibit the growth elsewhere? Is it that you don't usually have a healthy variety of algae problems right like usually it's one dominant species that it's 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 succession right we talk about ecological succession and it's you know if you have a bryopsis issue you have a bryopsis issue and sure there may be a couple of patches of valonia or something else but there's a dominant species that's like hey i'm here and i feel like when you grow a cato refugium or you grow a turf scrubber you're choosing where and who that dominant species is Amen. and that somehow makes it's you know that 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 wake of that dominance shows up in your display as you know hey uh, there's no algae there and that sounds kind of crazy and people are probably going to roll their eyes at that but like, just like a forest Right. It's just like a forest. You get grass, then you get shrubs, then you get weedy trees, and then you get old growth forest. I'm oversimplifying. I'm sure there's a forest ecologist out there who keeps a reef tank who's just screaming silently, but it's, it's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. You know, and on those same lines, like, Valonia will blow up before it settles down. And then you'll just kind of kind of a, a low level growth of Valonia that you just have to kind of get in a couple places manually. But yeah, you're to, you're totally right. Yeah, I mean, because it limit export it does export right because you're going to harvest that algae, so you are removing nutrients. But that algae needed those nutrients to grow in the first place. So again, 
um, maybe again, like uh, like I hate this analogy. I don't know how else to put it. But maybe you're causing that nutrient web to be a little tight, more tightly wound, and there's just not a bunch of shit floating around. Excuse my language for for everybody to consume. I, I don't know, but uh, like my take on it is, you just willingly chose this turf algae to dominate in your sump and it's you play god a little bit it's boss now yeah you play god a little bit you just kind of shifted the where the algae growth is going to happen you know if you have it on 24 hour light cycle or rdp reverse daylight photosynthesis you know you're you're concentrating where the co2 the nutrients and certain traces are being focused up i think the only you know downfall not that not a downfall but one of the shortcomings to it an algae scrubber or a ketomorpha reactor is once you you know get the nutrients under control then you have to think about how to keep it up yeah right now i don't, you got to take care of something else <laughs> i don't not enough people talk about using an algae scrubber for a little while yeah right we use uv sterilizers for a little while and we're going to talk about that when we get at medieval we talk about using a mid uh, uh, uv sterilizer for a little while or ozone for a little while but we don't talk enough about like just an inline algae scrubber that you use for a little while until you get stuff under control and then you get rid of it because what will inevitably happen is you will get ahead of the algae but now you have a different algae farm that you have to look after you get a dose of iron and manganese and a couple other things to keep it really happy. Otherwise, it's going to kind of flail. You know, I've seen too many people showing off their algae scrubbers with, like, the sickest, weakest algae that I've ever seen. I'm like, dude, if it's not dark green, you're, you know, either you don't need to be running it or you're not doing it right. You know, so the algae scrubber, it's almost like growing a different kind of thing within your reef aquarium. And it's not open-ended. And we've also talked about different forms of algae that grows on the screens or different species of ketomorpha that grow uh, more ideally into, you know, those kinds of environments. Um, but uh, anything else you want to add about the algae scrubber side of things? No, I mean, I... What you talked about, about trace element supplementation for algae is definitely true. Uh, and based on the things I have, you know, witnessed or talked to other reef keepers that are passionate about it, I personally haven't run into that issue. Um, maybe maybe it's what I feed. Who knows, right? Like, I, I haven't felt the need to dose Do you iron. run 24-7 or RDP? No, I just reverse daylight. Yeah, so see, you run an RDP old school style sucking up the co2 while the tank is you know mostly breathing and not photosynthesizing so you don't have those uh limiting and nutrients nearly as much that's actually another good point right because um is an algae scrubber removing that co2 enough to your point right in terms of earlier um it's it's another way of of binding up that co2 um but yeah, I mean, most people that have had a refugium have run into this weird thing where you'll see a patch of cyano in your fuge, but there's none in your tank, right? So there is this weird displacement effect where you've just moved the problem to the sump. Um, I also think that the actual term refugium matters in the sense that um, I do feel like the reason an older tank has less problems is that you eventually have a diversity of microbes that are contributing to both being competitive, uh, you know, in terms of um, 
um, especially when you're talking about like dinos and, and silicates and stuff is you've introduced competition, right, with microbial life. And the other part is also uh, they eat that crap, right? So I, I do imagine that if a fuge does properly function in keeping your pod population and everything sustainable, that, that may have some, some minute beneficial impact on your algae problems as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think that's part of your success is and it brings just like a just a joy to my eyes to know that you run your macro your algae scrubber in the reverse oh, daylight photosynthesis because when you run it twenty four seven, I think it's a lot easier for the macro and microalgaes to run out of nutrients, you know, as fast as you can add them, and. Um, you don't you don't have to do a 12 straight 12 12 you know you could even do like 18 on six off but just giving them a little bit of a rest and i think that's part of the reason for your success and some of those always cool tricks of running it opposite of the aquarium to keep things uh more imbalanced um but you know one of the just the easiest you know, thing to pick up off the shelf on your LFS or your online vendor is phosphate removers. It just seems like the most natural, easy thing to do. And I kind of want to start with the worst one. <laughs> not, not, not necessarily the worst one, but it's not the solution that people are looking for. And I'm talking about lanthanum chloride. Yeah, that's dangerous, man. It's dangerous it has killed a lot of fish. It won't affect your corals so much, but it, it has been demonstrated by many experienced reefers that lanthanum chloride, you gotta be careful. Never set it up on a doser. Do not set it up, you know, in, like late in the afternoon and let just wait till the next morning to see what happens. Like you need to set that up and just kind of watch your tank. Go ahead and underdose it. Um, manually, never set it up on a doser. Did I mention never set it up on doser? And don't <laughs> set it up on multiple tanks at the same time. When you have no experience with it, you might lose multiple fish across multiple systems. You know, this has been documented recently in the reef aquarium hobby. And lanthanum chloride is really most effective and it makes the most sense on very large volumes of, volumes of water. Like with, a public aquarium or... With very high phosphates. And I know that many public aquariums actually use these on like mammal exhibits where the phosphates are just undetectable. They're so high. Yeah. Unregisterable. Off the scale. Whatever. They're off the scale. They're used for like hippos and seals and sea lion exhibits. Right? Because it's really good at bringing your phosphates down from 2 ppm almost to like 0.2 ppm, so 90% reduction. But 0.2 ppm, if you have uh, a algae bloom, that's still plenty to fuel the growth. Right? So it's not going to take you the, 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 the extra distance. Right? So if your phosphates are really riding that high, you need to do a water change, <clears throat> reduce your lighting. You know, reduce, increase your nutrient export, use an automatic filter roll, clean your filter sock, remove your sand bed, and just do some of those pragmatic things first, right? But it's just so easy when you see it on the shelf at an aquarium shop. You're like, oh, just add some drops, reduces phosphates. Yeah, that's not exactly how it works. So it's really suitable for very large aquariums with higher phosphate levels. No 
a hobby, of course, should really be using lanthanum chloride unless they really know what they're doing or they're really trying to keep a lot of fish that they feed a lot in an average reef tank. Yeah, it's, I think uh, the original use is for swimming pools, right? So, again, large body of water. Um, yeah, and I'll make it. I'll make a personal opinion on a lot of this stuff, which, you know, may apply to people that are listening versus um, maybe not for others. But I'm just not good with um, tackling things that way, right? Like with a something that you dose, where if you dose too much, it's it's you're in the danger. Like we talked on a podcast about the the the, the dangers of overdoing it. I am. That's still my favorite session today. Yeah, me too. And it's I feel I feel like it just answers all the questions. Don't overdo this, don't overdo that. Don't anything you're thinking about doing, just don't overdo it. And you won't get in trouble. And lanthanum falls squarely in that Venn diagram. Just don't do it. Don't yeah, overdo I'm it. I'm the wrong guy to mess with that, right? Like I uh, I don't I'd have to use like some really strong discipline not to overdo it. Um and that that goes true with uh, the other phosphate removers you're about to probably bring up, but I tried no pox, I tried carbon dosing, and you know, finding the sweet spot where you're not overdoing it and bottoming things out and and causing new problems versus dosing too little that it has very little impact. Like finding that sweet spot, I feel like it's sometimes so hard with a lot of those products that I keep trying, I keep getting excited by this stuff, but then I, it's, it's usually, um, ends up being a failed experiment for me. So, yeah, I know. I think there's something to be said for being really aggressive in the nutrient controls in the beginning days of a reef tank. That's when all the outbreaks want to happen. Right. And it's only older aquariums where you have that microbial biology, that myofaunal biology, the macro creatures that you can actually see that can really help with the diversity of the reef aquarium that you can get away with having higher phosphates and higher nitrates, right? right? But in the early days when everything is trying to do some succession, it just doesn't work. So, you know, you can add corals in the beginning. Like right now, I got the fat cube, it's two weeks old. Dude, we were gonna do a videos a video and just kind of summarizing this, just kind of hitting the, the, the highlights. It's been less than two weeks. We've we're already through the uglies. Nice. We've already passed it. Like literally week one, a little bit of diatom growth, a little bit of extra this and that. Um, now we're just, just around the corner from two weeks and they're gone. They're just simply gone. There's nothing even to show. So I'm like, okay, let's talk about this on reef therapy instead of the video format because that way we can really dive in. Because in videos, you know, I really want to illustrate what's going on. But in this particular aquarium, I used some aluminum oxide early on, um, also known as Fosgard little white beads that have a little bit more long lasting power and they seem to be able to bring the phosphates down lower. Um, whereas granular ferric oxide, GFO, has more capacity, but doesn't seem to be able to get the nitrate, the phosphates down as low as aluminum oxide. So like it works faster and has higher capacity, but aluminum oxide for me seems to work a little bit better over the long term. And we've already removed it. We, we ran it on there for like four or five days. Dude, it's got like seven or eight fish, 200 gallons, corals, fish, rock. And it just happened like that. 
but um, I want to describe a little bit more of like the uh, the herbivores. Um, but uh, yeah, so we talked about lanthanum chloride. Uh, unless you're in four-digit four-digit volume reef tank, it's, it's not ideal. It can work, especially if you have a ton of fish and you insist on feeding a ton of food and not rinsing your mysis shrimp. Um, but next is, you know, GFO is really common, widely available. I don't believe you need a dedicated media reactor, right? We already have sumps and overflows with a bunch of water flowing through. There's a lot of creative things you can do to just put a filter bag in there. You don't but have to find so a filter bag. And, uh, you know, again, I don't... I've never spent too much time tackling things from this angle, so maybe it's a my lack of observation, me being a hermit and living in my little bubble in my house. But I run into a lot of reef keepers that are talk about they talk about the effectiveness of GFO and aluminum oxide, and they use it because it it lets them keep their phosphates at this ppm or ppb, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I know I use it. I need to use it like, it, like I replace it this many times and it keeps my, it brings my phosphates down and lets me keep it at, uh, let's just say 0.1 or 0.05 ppm. And I'm that happy. That sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah. Cool. I think um, it's important to mention that a 0.1 to 0.05 ppm or milligrams per liter, that's a reasonable range to keep your phosphate at. We didn't mention that. I just want to throw yeah. it out there. But I mean, did it fix a visual issue with the tank is my question right so they the, the guys that are rigorous about testing their tanks they're like oh, we're in the range i want to be at cool mission accomplished but did it fix some kind of problem and that's where i'm always kind of curious uh um does if your phosphates are at five and you bring them down to one five ppm yeah Oh, you need to start over. <laughs> if your phosphates are at five, you just need to start over. I've never but, seen five. I've seen two. I think five, you just need to quit. <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't think you can measure above five with aquarium test kits. Like it peaks at around not, two yeah. ppm. Ah, uh, what's Richard Ross's tank at? Like it's pretty I think high. one two. Oh, okay. Anyway, question is like, did they did they have an algae issue that they were able to resolve, or did, were, are they just happy that they're in the zone that they want to be in? Which isn't wrong, right? I think for certain people, targeting certain parameters is a probably a great thing to do. I don't, right? I, I don't. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell people something is a great thing to do, and then both of us don't do it. Well, I mean, I you know, th there are metrics that you could say, oh, your water is good quality salt water in your reef tank. Like you have a, you have a nice, uh, your corals are bathing in some quality water, right? But, mm -hmm. um, but I, I just you know, like did did your um, baropsis disappear overnight, did, or not overnight, but did, you know, did it slowly starve out? Did you see? Uh, that, that's what I'd be interested in in the comments because I am again I live in a bubble I don't see a lot of other people's reef tanks very often so you know maybe it's just a lack of observation on my part. Some of the added benefits of granular ferric oxide and aluminum oxide are they don't just absorb phosphate, right? So GFO in particular has kind of a broad spectrum of absorption curve where it will pull in some of the other nasties that you may not want to have in your aquarium 
uh, GFO is kind of, kind of really like a long-term uh, chemical media that you can use in your aquarium. Um, but excessive use of aluminum oxide, such as Fosgard and other similar, you know, spherical white beads, is, um, can also leach aluminum. So I really go to great lengths to soak any, like I, I'll take a big old thing of the Brightwell version and soak it overnight. Like I'll soak it for days. I'll leave it for, I'll forget it for like a week or two, soak it in some water water to help it leach some of that aluminum because it can build up fuse too much, right? But it goes back to that episode we said, just don't overdo it. But you really want to rinse the uh, aluminum oxide very, very well. And again, I like to soak it and just keep I keep like a small stockpile of it that's already pre-soaked and pre-rinsed really, really well. But they have some other benefits as far as like pulling out some heavy metals. And then one kind of a newer category that I actually have at the studio but I've never had to use, and I'm not sure you're familiar with it, is there are some new resins. Um, I think it's called Purit by Brightwell Aquatics, and I think Maxbect um, also has another one. And they are like aggressive and specific at pulling out phosphates. Again, I don't have algae problems. I dose phosphates because I need it for my corals. And so I haven't had the opportunity to use some of these um, ion-specific phosphate-removing resins. But there's a new class of these, and I don't know if they're rechargeable, but this is kind of like the bleeding edge of aggressive phosphate removal, right? And um, I guess we haven't talked, we touched a little bit on kind of the carbon dosing and um, man, that could be really effective. But I feel like it's also one of those things, if you starve out, like say a new reef tank before you've put corals on there for like two months and just make it really ultra low nutrient system, just completely indetectable uh, phosphates and nitrates for the first few months, as you start adding corals, man, it's going to be really hard for any algae to take hold, you know? And so this is another thing, right? Like diatoms, cyano, dinos, probably unavoidable. But if you go to great lengths and take care to remove the bases off your coral colonies or the plugs from your coral frags, if you never introduce Valonia into your tank, you'll never have Valonia in your tank. Just does, It's just not like physically possible in this universe. Right, it just the, yeah, the, the but... DNA for that Valonia is not going to magically appear. There's always like a small piece of like living, yeah, you know, reef rock that you might not be able to get rid of. But if you never introduce Entermorpha or Bryopsis or Dabesia or Valonia, you'll never have it in your tank. Cyano, Dytons, Dytons, they'll come. What's the Jurassic Park line? Life finds a way, you know? That's Whether where the Dytoms and the Dinos and yeah. Sino come in, right? Those spores are in the air. I live in the mountains, and those spores show up. Yeah. But Isn't higher... watermelon snow? Is That's a cyano bloom on snow, right? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. But that comes from duck poop or something like that. Like bird poop is from what I recall reading as well. But I don't know. You got fish poop. You got snail poop. You got... Um, it's hard, man. I, I, I hear you. Like, I think it's a really good approach, right, is just to not bring it in in the first place. But eventually, some microscopic cellular... Agree to disagree. ...fragment might come in, you know. <laughs> I also feel that there's also the dichotomy between getting infected by bacteria 
and getting viral loading, right? Yeah. So even if you introduce a tiny bit, that's a good. It's going to be harder yeah. for it to really take hold. Uh, versus you're just adding all the bases and all the core plugs and all the cleanup crew po poop that is just just going to inoculate your tank. And I feel like this is an awesome segue into the herbivores. One new stance I'm taking for my newer aquariums is being really mindful of what I'm adding to the tank from other reef tanks and what spores they might be introducing, right? That's why the 400-gallon tank doesn't have any stomatellas. I'd be surprised if there was a single cup pod in that tank. It's been running for, what, are we going three months? I got four acros in there. Okay, it's probably a couple of pods. But I have not seen anything beyond like a small amount of diatoms because they're in the air, right? And, uh, you know, one of the best awesome points you made on re-therapy, probably one of the first five or ten sessions, was the scientific research about herbivores. If you're on a natural reef and you take away the herbivores, algae explodes, right? So what we talked about reducing the light and reducing the nutri nutrients, and the nutrients is like more than half of this whole session, <laughs> is prevention, yeah. right? And then once you have it or leading up to it, herbivores are just really, really important. Do you want to elaborate on some of the things that you've said in the past? Well, and this goes into something that's, I'm going to make a joke, is that maybe I'm the wrong guy to ever hit up for algae advice because I suck at keeping nanos. Um, no, you don't. Your nano is fine. <laughs> no, I, I'm terrible at them. Um, but the reason for that is that the availability of herbivores, if you have a sizable tank, a.k.a. tangs, right, it's, it's a game changer to me, right? Like my success as a reef hobbyist hinges very much on being able to keep uh, herbivorous fish, right? Snails are great, don't get me wrong, and we can get no, into- No, they're not, we'll get into it. But I'm with you on the herbivory and how important it is. Carry yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, and that's the problem with me. When I set up a five gallon tank, I can't put a tang in it, right? I mean, I could, but it'd be pretty bad. <laughs> um, so once you get into a 75 gallon tank and you know please tank police don't shoot me um do, do, are they even still functioning the tank police <laughs> i didn't know that they had meetings but um <laughs> but you know just once you get into a tank size where you don't feel guilty keeping like a bristle tooth tang and a zebra soma man algae management gets so much easier it's mm -hmm. just they're just lawn mowers you know so they will do a lot of heavy lifting this yeah is, this is a fact and so um and and that's where i you know when i set up a small tank yeah i mean i you know throwing a, a mithrax crab in there and some some astrea snails doesn't quite cut it um that said um i have a new found love for snails well not new found it's been a year i guess but there was a point where my gyres were um they were like you said they were too high for the tanks to get on them and mm. they were getting a little turfy right um but my take on it is is whenever i've got turf growing in the hard to reach areas guess what i don't have a cyano or a dino issue um and i'm and so yeah my tank is sort of like that reef you described where they 
preclude any herbivores from getting uh, access to a section of a reef, right? Like that's my gyre pump, right? Like uh, the herbivores can't get to it. Um, but I, I got, you know, I, I love Mexican turbos, even though they're very short lived. Man, I ordered a couple of those, put them on the actual pumps, and the next day those pumps were clean, spotless. Chris, I was like, oh, Chris, you guys Chris actually Tao. do eat algae. Like, yeah, pretty cool. Um, so, you, you know, I, I didn't include this in the show notes, but um, if you feed the shit out of your fish, why would they eat like bitter, yeah. nasty, tough algaes? Yeah. They're like, I got this nori sheet right here, I'm just, man. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. If you feed your kid ice cream, why would he or she eat broccoli? Right? So that's another thing. Like, I feed very moderately. And for most of my tanks, you know, uh, say three feet and above, I like to include three types of surgeon fish. I want, personally, I want one zebrasoma usually a yellow or scopus. I want one um, Tinochitis. Tomini is my boy for that. Mm-hmm. The flame fin Tominiensis. They just have a kind of a bristle-tooth mouth that they really help scrape. And then I want one Acanthurus. And that's usually for me as a, as a convict tank because you can get them small and they get bigger, but they don't get as huge as like the big Acanthurus. And then... I'll have some blue tangs and some other tanks, but they're a little bit more open water swimming. Like they'll chew on stuff, but they're, I see them, like I have this one that just recently developed this bad habit of fragging corals and dropping the branch somewhere else, like far from where it could drop. And you've heard this before, right? Oh you've yeah. You've heard of blue, t- blue tangs, like just grabbing a branch and moving it somewhere else. Oh so, man, so I, th- I had to rehome mine because it, um, Again, this was another reason why I have taller walls on my new tank is it was splashing water over the the wall of the tank. It acted more like a trigger fish. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good yeah, it, it reminded me of a just a bored trigger fish, you know. So, yeah. So, I would say the blue tang is like the least algae eating. They're like comparable to the swallowtail angelfish. And you're talking about being, uh hepatis, right? Paracanthurus. Yeah. Hepatis, regal blue tang, blue tang, royal blue tang, dory. Dory. Okay. <laughs> dory, there you go. Yeah, Not the just, Atlantic blue tang, which is actually a really good algae grazer. But. Yeah, yeah. One small nose tang, like a yellow or zebra or, or scopus. One bristlemouth tang, like a coal or a tomini. And then the combat tang. And together, they just, they complement each other. Yeah. And they really just, that's that's what's left. Yeah, I, for, I can't believe I forgot to put fox faces and rabbit fish on here. The only problem with those guys is they are a little bit too into it. And they will start eating green corals. And this is not rare. It's not common, but it's also not rare. Like you hear this about, especially about fox faces, right? So in a tank that grows a lot of algae, like a fox face or an actual rabbit fish will do a lot of heavy lifting. I only have one rabbit fish. I have 20 reef tanks. I only have one rabbit fish. I'm not super fond of them. (laughs) Yeah, but it used to be. It used to, to to really really be, and so yeah, having those th- those three different mouths from the surgeon fish, and then like one fox face or rabbit fish uh, style fish is going to help to really just graze down every surface. And um, I'd say one of the best um, algae eating tanks, but they just get so big so fast. Are the uh, sailfins because they'll the 
Dave's Jardinis will eat bubble algae in my experience. And I've mm-hmm. had multiple uh, sailfins eat bubble algae, so it's not my just My yellow tanks eat one. bubble algae. Do they? Yeah. Nice. Because I don't feed them that much. Yeah. It goes back to not overfeeding, not giving them a choice. They get one feeding per day, you know, maybe twice a day. They probably get about 10 feedings a week right so some days i get a little bit to supplement their diet but man i swear i'll be on my frag rack and i'll pull up a coral or frag plug and they'll finally have access to a piece of that crate they have to i've seen my yellow tangs just straight go for it and i i I can concur with the proclivity of desjardini tangs red sea self and tangs um eating a, a bubble algae pretty well also but i think it's not so much of species level things, although the Red Sea selfins are maybe a little bit better at it because I've had uh, purple tangs also do it. If you just feed a little less, they'll develop a taste and appetite for things that just naturally grow, grow in the aquarium. Yeah, I've had um, uh, another one that eats it re- really well is Doliatus rabbit fish, but again, mm-hmm. they get big, and uh, I had to rehome mine because he started munching on coral and. Just not worth. The Have you benefit. noticed them eating green corals? Man, it was a while ago. Um, because when I've had challenges with fox faces and rabbit fishes eating corals, they were almost always green. They're like, "Oh, this is green. I'm supposed to eat green algae. Let me try this out." Mine was but going again, for I'm, fleshy LPS, but no. I don't. I don't remember what color they were. Um, it was a while ago, but yeah, it's just. Um, but you know, with the the thing about Valoni is, uh, I got like a plastic stick that's i don't know polyethylene or whatever like the kind that you used to order to drill holes in live rock and make live rock towers and stuff whatever was recommended to do that back in the day i had some extra ones of those drilled a hole in one end carefully you know so i didn't drill into my hand um wedged a nail into it with some super glue um it probably would have been better to do like a few right to almost create like um like a prong or something but I just every once in a while I just go around my tank and I pop all the bubble algae and the whole myth that that creates more bubble algae I think has been disproven that there's no spores no. in there no um, I overhear this at reef shops all the time when you this is a, a simple thought experiment when your emerald crab eats bubble algae it pops the bubble right when your tangs <laughs> eat bubble algae they pop the bubble this right. whole myth like if you knew how many spores these things put out you realize it just doesn't even matter whether it's ten thousand or or million spores it just doesn't matter don't forget about the spores we'll talk about the medieval stuff here in a little bit well but- no but the point about the grazers was i think the whole bubble growth is to make it harder for let's say a convict tang to eat it right but once you pop it, it's like ulva, right? It's just this like leafy thing attached to the rock and they go in and they devour it. So That's an incredible point that I've never even thought about. Because if I pop a bowl of algae, it's because I'm in there taking it out. But you're right. Pop it. And when it's, you know, less than a few millimeters across, it makes it a lot easier for the fish to chew on it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not this giant hamburger that doesn't fit in your mouth, right? So mm. anyway. That's a cool point. I actually learned something. <laughs> just, pop, just pop that stuff, man. Pop that stuff, manually remove it. Yeah. Uh, so so the tangs and surgeon fish, they get a lot of um, props for being herbivores. But there's, I mean, think about it. 
there's like 10, 20,000 species of marine fish. You think surgeon fish are the only ones that figured out how to eat algae? Right. Come on now. Yeah. Come on now. And I said, man, you know, every time we dive deep in some of these stuff, I feel like there's a lot of forgotten knowledge about herbivory or just any other technique about reef tanks. And like lawnmower blennies, they'll eat some algae. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's deceptive because like lawnmower makes it seem like they're just going to approach a patch of hair algae and just mow it down like a lawn. But that's not true. But they will, especially if the rock is cleaner, they'll keep it grazed down to the point where algae won't grow. Right? Yeah. And I think all but a few like specialized blennies like myacanthus and um, some of the imitation blennies, uh, imitator blennies. Um uh, a lot of your, uh, oh God, I'm spacing out on names real quick. Um, Asenius, the Asenius blennies. Mm. Like if you grow little diatoms on your glass, they're always going to be kissing the glass. So a lot of blennies will stick marks. Yeah. Yeah. They will totally do this. They'll leave almost an identical mark to a bristle tooth tang. Right. So a lot of blennies will eat some algae they're just they're just not the powerhouses of a surgeon fish right so they're a little bit better for smaller tanks but on the note of smaller tanks um god it used to be very widely known that rainford and hector's gobies really small little you know uh, amblygobia species will eat the bejesus as some algae right the dragon goby is probably the most tenacious like tough algae tough hair algae eater Right? I don't see dragon gobies at my local fish store anymore. Yeah. I don't. That's true. That's a good point. It's been a long time since I've just seen, like, people used to come into my store when I worked, like, 10, 15 years ago in the reef aquarium retail space, and I would sell so many dragon gobies because they're super hardy, super cheap, not very pretty, but it's very utilitarian. But if you're leaning more towards, like, a nano aquarium, Rainfords and Hectors, man, they're the same thing in a smaller package. And a much prettier package. And they're, again, unlike tangs, I would say, don't expect them to, like, mow down an inch of turf, right? You got to be in there and and go medieval, again, to overuse that word. And then they're like the the, the cleanup crew that comes in after and kind of keeps it at that new shortened level is the way i always like a crime always scene cleanup it. you get yeah. rid of the body they yeah. get rid of the blood yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking the same thing really <laughs> yeah the crime scene cleanup like they come in with the bottles of bleach you know <laughs> um so i feel like also like so i think those are the main aquarium herbivores of course you'll you know butterfly fish and moorish idols angelfish will graze them some algae but they're not going to put in some good 40-hour work week you know if we can put it that way um but i feel like cleanup crew is also a misnomer because a lot of the cleanup crew very few things actually target the algae they're more about eating up the leftover food stirring up detritus maybe picking out a little bit of algae right and i'm talking about you know your snails your crabs and your hermit crabs you know emerald crabs they will do some work on some tough algaes but they don't move very fast and for some reason i keep finding them in my style forest where there's no algae i'm like what are you doing bro there'll be yeah. like two of them in the same colony I'm like what are you doing you are not 
a you know trapezia crab. You were not a coral crab. What are you doing in there? And they're you know? in my experience omnivorous, right? So because I've, I've so. had them do a good number slowly on Valonia, and I'm like, yay! All right, this is my new Red Sea selfin for nano tanks. And then all of a sudden you're like, why are you ripping out my corals? <laughs> you know? mm. Like I've seen them eat a leather coral, which I thought was a bit Yucky. surprising. Yeah, I'm like, well, who wants to like eat a leather bitter? coral? But uh, one of the old Colorado green polyp leathers, man, that thing was going to town on it. And I'm like, okay. Probably because it didn't have other things to eat, right? right. So in the same note that like you don't want to satiate the appetite of your surgeon fish so that they develop a taste and palate for a wider variety of things that are already going in your tanks. If you go too far, yeah. your emerald crabs will eat anything. There's the I, other extreme, a, right? If you put an emerald crab with an acro or a cinerina or a micro musa and there's nothing else to eat, they will eat it. But they're not coral eaters. They're just, like you said, omnivorous. They will just do whatever they can and you know a shrimp will also they shrimp probably don't get nearly enough credit as far as like being a, a cleanup crew um probably because the industry is trying to drive the hobby and they're there's just shrimp a little bit more expensive and delicate and no one wants to really keep anything but peppermint shrimp specifically for aptasia removal but a lot of these things are omnivorous and so most of your cleanup crew like nosarius perfect example they just live in your sand. They'll stir it up a little bit, and they're going to eat, you know, food that falls on the sand, and they'll consume some of the stuff that fall that makes its way inside the sand, right? Sand dollars used to be a thing, right? But they're mostly omnivorous, and they're still part of a cleanup crew because they're kind of keeping things clean. Um, same thing with the sand sifting starfish; they're keeping things clean to a point where hopefully those nutrients don't build up and don't fuel algae growth. But they're not so much of like a direct algae eaters you know some of the snails will do great um, work at first but like you said it's just like kind of a really short shelf life i have 20 reef tanks and i have four snails each one of them hitchhiked on something and just survived with a will to live and now i only have like four very big snails i haven't even looked at them closely to know which species because i'm more focused on my abalones love my abalones yeah but those are hard to get man like the ones well, you have. i know a guy in bali you know and he made sure to send a shipment to california and i made sure to get most of those but now i have enough abalones but those are amazing dude they will destroy they are lawnmowers they will literally mow down a lawn in a larger aquarium but they need more food right so you can't put an abalone in a small tank you know, you're talking about a four-foot tank minimum for yeah. an abalone, right? Because they, they yeah. will run out of food, and that's no good. And you know what's really funny? Finding my six-inch long <laughs> abalones on what's left over of my nori clip. That's always <laughs> super funny. So I've got this one especially large specimen. I mean, it is the, literally the size of my hand. Like, I could, if I was starving, I could literally eat it, and it would probably taste delicious. Um, she also likes to squirt eggs out of the tank about once a month we find green splooge i am not kidding <laughs> green splooge 
outside the tank, hits the lights, hits the skimmers, hits the back wall, hits the, the, the stand. Like, I don't know how far she's squirting, but I do have a male in another tank, and it's a good thing they're separated because I've heard it's not – it's like a giant clam spawn if they get together. It's just not a good time. She spooges <laughs> outside the tank. But I got some smaller ones, but – I'm, I'm on this kick, man. Like the industry is trying to lead the hobby. Why is no one selling Stomatellus? I love I, Stomatellus. Didn't <clears throat> Indo-Pacific Sea Farms used to sell Stomatellus? Maybe. I know they used to sell this other snail, and they may still do it, that they look like tiny little conks, but they don't get much bigger. Um, I forget the genus, man. I'm sorry. Dude, stomatellas um, are freaking magic for like the surface stuff. Yeah. That is one of the few things that I really go out of my way to introduce into new aquariums. They're so easy to harvest. I just pull out a flat coral or a flat plate or a flat frag rack and they're always just clustered under there. Big ones. And they're fast. And I, and I, and I, mean, I spread them just... out everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. And the only reason they're not sold in the reef aquarium hobby is they're not straightforward to culture. But they are incredible. I have one tank. I have one tank that grows a certain amount of like biofilm. It has a coral band shrimp in there. And he eats any stomatellas I put in there. Yeah, I they used to be a mainstay in my tank. And um, I haven't Every once in a while, I may see one, but I, I have a feeling something's eaten mine, which Coral is a shame. Coral shrimp. Or do, if you I have, have shrimp um, in my tank. kind of a heavy metal spike, it will nuke them out. Um, but yeah, the only tank that has kind of a persistent biofilm is the one that I keep a blue-legged coral banded shrimp in because he will hunt them down and eat them. There's not a single coral banded shrimp in there. I'm sorry. There's not a single stomatella in there because he will eat them. But then I have another tank that has a large pair of regular coral-banded shrimp. I don't have any stomatels in there, but I got a field of asterinas. I think I have at least three different species of asterinas here. And you know what? Sometimes they eat coral. Sometimes they do. And they don't just sit there and devour the whole freaking thing in one sitting, right? They'll just start picking at the edge. And it's like they get programmed. They get, I'm sorry, Aquilonastra starfish. <laughs> That's the new name, the Aquilonastra starfish. Uh, Asterinas, colloquially. And I will occasionally have to pull out a handful of them off a of coral because they just, they just get like in this programmed state where like, oh, I'm going to eat this thing now. But in my, you know, Red Sea Peninsula Aquarium, which is just packed end to end with corals, I think I just took out like two or three pounds of stony coral out of it because it was just too much. Um, they don't go to town, but once in a while they just kind of get tricked, like flipped on, like a switch flips on. They're like, okay, we're eating this coral, but they do it really slowly from the edge. And I can just literally pull off the, 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 the offending asterinus and, you know, six months later, like no problem. No yeah. problem at all. I haven't but had one thing any I did issues notice, One thing I have noticed is if I dose phosphates a little bit too much, the Asterina population kind of, you know, uh, booms a little bit. Blows up. Which, which is a direct indication that they're not only eating uneaten food, but they're also directly eating algae. Right. right? Those little so microalgae spikes that you're getting on the glass, which is why they crawl up the glass, I think, at night, right? Mm -hmm. Is they're... Uh, 
less predation, I think. Maybe they're a bit more nocturnal. And like every morning I go downstairs, fill up the coffee machine, and like the, my glass is just littered with the uh, Asterinas. Um, I don't yeah. keep zoanthids, so maybe that's why I've never... I know a lot of folks have complained about them irritating zoanthids. I've never seen them eat a coral, so they, other than just being there and kind of being annoying sometimes, they don't bother me. I'd say the two herbivores that I always use that I don't really see a lot of people talk about in the invert stage, one is, uh, I like Mexican turbos. Um, I have a few that are like three to five years old, so, and I keep my tanks above 80, so you know, the whole temperate species, I don't know. Um, but I think part of the problem is like, you don't need 30 of them. You know, like my 180 has That's five. the other thing, the whole like number <laughs> oh, yeah, of the snails package. a cleanup crew yeah. per gallon. Like, come yeah. on guys. No. Order the 10 gallon kit for your 180. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, That's an awesome point actually. But I'm glad you like turbos. The other one I is love, pin cushions. Do you like uh, urchins? Oh, God, I love urchins, man. I love urchins. There but the is, whole tuxedo I mean, thing, like, I, I've done tuxedos, and eh, I like me some pin cushion urchins, man. Um, I'm a little bit more of a tuxedo guy. My, yeah. The only thing I don't like is when they pick up corals oh, and they walk around with, with them. Yeah. Which is cool on its own, but then they take that piece of acro or <laughs> euphelia or green star polyp or so anything, and they walk around and they accidentally sting stuff. It's again, it's, it's not the end of the world. It is not a deal breaker. I'm a little bit more of a tuxedo guy, but yeah, those short spine sea urchins and even long spine sea urchins, that is the most devourous cleanup crew you can possibly get. Right, one urchin is worth like ten to twenty snails. And oh it's, man, it's yeah. likely to outlive them all. It's it's going to get bigger if you get like a long spine or a didema that like just kind of comes with your rock or something, or your coral. Like you're going to have to get rid of it. Like that's how big it will get. It, it, versus turbo snails, like you'd be lucky to have two out of ten survive past six months. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer, but that's why I've just stuck to Asterinas and Stomatellas that reproduce on their own. They are not part of the conversation because they cannot be sold because it's, you have to manually scoop them up and harvest them. The, the, so, so the, I think the reason, um, the, the, the time that Mexican turbos earned a permanent place in my tank was, uh, I don't know the genus name of this algae anymore. Um, I wrote about it a crap ton on Reef Central back in the day, but the cotton candy algae is what we oh, called it. Oh yes, that's the reason I cyanobacteria. Well, it's it's like a, almost like a fern where it has a sporophyte phase, it, and then it has a more leafy phase, I believe. But we only got like the the fuzzy phase in our tanks. Um, I, I think this, if I recall, this is what made. Sanjay reboot his 180 at one point. I remember this. Yeah, the cotton um, candy algae. And I, I mean, I tried everything back then to get rid of it. And I was on, you know, grasping at straws. And then somebody recommended Mexican turbos. And uh, I put them in my tank feeling bad that they would probably be short-lived. And they just mowed that crap down. And I was like, okay. Um, and now I have a few that are a few years old and... I don't know if it's a temperature thing. I wonder if it's just that they starve out because they're big ass snails. So again, maybe if you only put like two or three in a tank, that's which is what I do, 
they hang around longer. Like maybe this whole temperate argument is sort of a, a falsehood, and maybe it's just they get hungry. Um, you know what? The rest of the hobby can figure out what's wrong with the snails, and I'm fully content with my abalones, my stomatellas, my asterinas. Like they fill the niche that I need. And it's so funny though that that cotton candy algae, how did we all get it at the same time? Because now you don't see it anywhere. Anymore. Now it's gone. Yeah, now I have cotton totally. candy coralline. Yeah. I have like tiny little patches of coralline. I think Mike Paletta recently talked about having issues with it. And I'm like, I don't know if he just doesn't have a variety of herbivores. But like, I know I have it in my tanks. If I made a box and kept everything out of it, like it would grow there. But like very few spots I can actually find it. And it was when I started up the coral flats, like I could find it in certain spaces and I was starting to worry that it might be like cotton candy algae, but it was like 20 years ago, we all got cotton candy at the same time, probably from the Caribbean, from lots of Caribbean influence. Yeah. And now it's gone. Now it's just gone. And you know what? It'll come back again and no one will bother to read the threads from 10 to 20 <laughs> years ago about how we all solved it. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's the same that the, that whole um, how the battlefield has changed over time is why I get annoyed when people talk about dinos like it's 2002, you know, like, oh, I just do a blackout. It's just uh, it's just one of those things that happens when you first set up a tank. It's like, no, man, no, there's support groups for dinos for a reason, you know, like like name an algae that has a Facebook support group. <laughs> <laughs> None so. of these books talk about dinoflagellates in any context other than zooxanthellae for your corals. Right. Right. So. Like I, if I went through there, there would be no mention of dinoflagellates as a bloom inside of your tank. This is kind of a newer phenomenon. I firmly think it's from keeping our tanks too, too cool. And I know there's different species and it doesn't work all the way, but you know, on my LPS tank, I raised the temperature a little bit, actually added a heater. So it wasn't running it down 72. That's where it was running. It was running more like 75, 76. I added some iron, kind of just forgot about it. And like a month later, I'm like, oh, there's not a trace anymore. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I'm eating crow on that. And now diving into the various types of dinos that everyone is battling that's different. And these guys respond to UV, but these guys bury themselves in your substrate at night and they don't become free swimming. So UV doesn't do Not squat. if you don't have substrate. <clears throat> well, but my point is, um, I was firmly like, hey, uh, temperature worked for me. But now I, again have a strain that doesn't give a crap that I ran my tank at 84 degrees even. Um, and it's pretty warm. That's actually tropical. And it's weird that I've got a tank upstairs where I'm, it's a mucky, dirty tank with Kato growing in the sump and crushed coral substrate and some tangs roaming and everything's beautiful. And then I've got a tank down here where I've got a filter roller, a skimmer, some dead rock, right? And I've got cyano, or not cyano, dinos. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going old school. Like I pulled the filter roller for now. I think that to Wait, your, you pulled the filter roller? I almost feel like we were talking about things you do in the beginning and not do in the beginning. And I'm starting to think that when your tank is too sterile and there's not enough microbial life and there's not enough going on competitively uh, under you, a did microscope. Did you physically pull it out? I did. I, you know, I debated just, taking out the roll. You could the, just the open roll. the wind. You, you could also the, just 
open a little nozzle. You, no, you I, I completely uh, <laughs> yanked it for now. Uh, and I'm just skimming wet and I'm dosing Fido. I'm adding, um, you know, I'm adding copepods. I'm even dosing silicates, right, to get a little bit of diatom competition. So we'll see. We'll see. But now I'm going to go backpack for nine days and the tank's on its own. So, you know, maybe I'm lucky and I come back and the world has resolved it for me. You know, just I the think universe. that's what's going to happen. Be great. You stop messing with I it. Know. Like, for 10 <laughs> the days solution you're going to come back. It's, you're going to be like, oh, my God, it's crystal clear. And every yeah. call looks amazing. The tank's like, oh, thank God he's gone. All right. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps changing something every he day or two. freaking with the temperature. He's like, man. Yeah. Anyway. All right, we got one more section. I hope, you know, everyone listening has enjoyed all the things that we've discussed because I think we've touched on, like, every single trick except for going medieval on these mofos. And I think it can't be overstated that if you, if we're talking about not dinos, not cyano, but like actual hairy hair algae. Um, manual removal is just great. You know, like, all right, for example, here's a perfect example. I have grown my own kale before. And if I wanted the kale to taste really, really good, I would water the hell out of it for like two days in advance and then only harvest the top. It was just sweet and mild and soft. And if I didn't water it really well in the summertime, you know, obviously when it's growing, and then I harvested it, it'd be like a lot more bitter and a lot more tough. And so, you know, we didn't mention Molly's as an algae eater. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, I was That's just thinking about point. that. In some calmer aquariums, <clears throat> the freshwater comes saltwater, um, Pacelia latipina, mollies, um, they can be some really great algae eaters. They're just going to struggle with the tougher stuff, but they will consume anything. They're just like cows. I'm sorry. I don't know why that flashed in my head as I was talking about this. And so it's like it's the same thing with algae. If you, if you pull out the older stuff and you offer your herbivores um, more new growth with you know, a little bit brighter green tips, they're just going to be so much more inclined. And they're going to be together. You can form a team with your herbivores, your cleanup crew, your abalones, your stomatellas, your turbo snails, your certain fish. And together, you could win the game against hair algae. Right. But if you, you, you kind of clear cut it and just present them with some new growth or, and feed a little bit less, they're going to be so much more inclined to go for it. Yeah, I agree. And I think not to um, mention removing the algae is nutrient export. It right? is. It's like having algae scrubber, not where you want it. But every time you pull it out, you're just pulling out everything that hair algae needs to grow. Well, and I, I mean, I keep going back to these words, but, um, you know, maybe it's the ecology, the ecology biology degree, right? That just keeps bubbling up in my brain, but. Oh, don't, don't hold back. It's, it's, all of it is competition, right? It's all of these organisms are competing to etch out an existence in your tank. And sometimes, uh, for me, the way I look at it too, is you got a hundred people in a road race and they're all running, right? And but one of them keeps getting body checked like every mile and that's the turf algae and that's you going in there and getting medieval, right? But all the other um, 
microorganisms and myoorganisms, micro-myofauna, all the, the corals are starting to, you know, get their, their jive going, the coralline algae, they're all in this race, right? And it's, a race is a bad analogy because there's no destination, but they're all competing, right? They're all competing for things. But you're the, you're the guy or girl that's body checking the algae every time and knocking it down and it has that's to get up. And, I love that analogy. You know, it, there's, this is a horrible scientific argument, I guess, but I feel like you're, you're shifting the balance gradually, competitively, to the things that you are okay with succeeding in your tank, right? Um, and that, that you want winning the race, right? So, um, so yeah, I, I'm all for that. Yeah, no, it, it can't be overstated that when you're in the depths of it, just work on it yourself. Um, you can use, I think a really good approach is using a little bit of rigid tubing at the end of a tube of like a hose to help kind of scrape it down. I know, dude, in the past, we would just talk about all these different hacks to manually remove it. Put a, uh, you know, zip tie a toothbrush to the end of your hose or your rigid airline to kind of scrub it and suck it at the same time. Um, I don't think those Kong, like kind of spaghetti spinner things are available anymore, but those, those worked really freaking well. I'm sure someone could di one once again um but yeah just manual removal and then if you want to take things up a notch um sterilizing the water i mean this is this is like next level this is when you really have tried a lot of stuff but this stuff is actually kind of good to use in the beginning once again if you get ahead of it just like you've talked about ecological succession you get ahead of it with the uv sterilizer and or ozone you're killing the spores that are trying to spread everywhere and you're reducing some of those organics and helping your protein skimmer to export those nutrients before they turn into algae. You know, you do a combination of all the things we've talked about, your algae has gone. Like that's mm-hmm. just, it's just done. You reduce, you know, you reduce the photo period, reduce your feeding, take out your sand bed, add an algae crew, add some phosphate remover, Go to medieval on it, remove it yourself, uh, use a UV sterilizer. It's just it's just a matter of time. Well, right? uh, who was it? Marcellus Wallace from Pulp Fiction mentioned tweezers, right? Uh, stainless steel tweezers <laughs> when he said he was going to go medieval, right? Um, but seriously, like some, some good stainless. <laughs> well, I mean, you could blow torture rock, I guess, out of water, but. Um, no, but some good uh, stainless steel tweezers that have like really good grippy. Just it sounds tedious, but just go in at a patch and just pick that. Dude, it's cathartic. Stuff. Oh yeah. Dude, once in a while, I got a freshwater tank. I got my staghorn algae growing in there, and just I'll just you know drink a little bit of beer and have some very nice ADA tweezers about for forty bucks, like. 15 years ago, they were still like rust free. They got a little bit of ridges on the very tip and just, it's just cathartic. Just pull out a little bit here and just kind of separate it from the plants. And, um, but yeah, you know, there's some other things that, you know, you can do like, obviously everyone knows about can clean for cyanobacteria. Um, there's a treatment for bryopsis specifically called flucatazole. 
Yeah. Um, Reflux, I think, is one of the commercially available products. And I think a few other products are on the market with some variation of those syllables um, that will destroy Bryopsis specifically. Brightwell Tech M is an evolution of a Kent Marine product that was also magnesium that had some kind of slight contaminant that just so happened to eradicate Bryopsis. That stuff will also not make other algaes happy. Right, it will kill bryopsis, but other algaes will not be happy if you dose uh, Brightwell Techem. Oh my God, I'm thinking. I think Techem was the Kent Marine name. <laughs> I think I'm confused. I think it's called something else now under Brightwell. But there's a there is a Brightwell product. It's a specific magnesium that just has the added side effect of killing bryopsis. And um, you know, in the early days, you and I talked a little bit about Brightwell Razor, which is probably yeah. analogous to Vibrant. Um, I don't know about the... I know no. Vibrant has been shown to, to be an actual algicide, but I don't know about Brightwell Razor. And I think, once again, this is one of those products that's probably best used in the early days of a reef tank to just really clean the rock. Like, it, you mentioned it before, like, yeah, when it's you like use Brightwell Razor... Yeah. Your rock just looks amazing. Just looks like the rock and the coralline is fine and everything else is fine. But all of a sudden, there's just not a trace of algae, a biofilm, and it's really astounding. I know that Brightwell Razor is going to be more talked about in the future. It's been on the market for three years. It was kind of introduced in the early days of the Reef Builder Studio. But I think there's something to be said about summoning someone coming up with a recipe where you use tech uh, oh, sorry Brightwell razor in the early days to just really level the playing field so that way once you add your surgeon fish and you have your ecology under control and your cleanup crew is installed um you just this will be an afterthought you just you won't have a problem anymore i think i think um yeah like you said vibrance and algicide and i think what i heard about razor is it's like a polymer that coats your rocks and makes it hard for turf algaes and stuff to adhere to the rock. Yeah, um, but there's more to it than that because it literally killed my Volonia and it killed uh, yeah. every trace of green algae that I had. So I believe that it's a polymer, but it goes deeper than that. Yeah, yeah, I, it's an interesting product, um, and I don't, I don't, yeah. When it comes to something like Bryopsis, for example, I don't have any beef with using fluconazole. Same reason I don't have any beef with using, uh, I'm going to guess it's metronidazole or something like that. Or no, erythromycin that is in uh, like some red slime removers. Um, and there's nothing that's going to eat Bryopsis effectively, right? There's nothing that's going to eat cyano, which is not an algae, but... Um, again sometimes you just got to shift that competitive landscape a bit you know you got to body check the thing you don't like and that gives that other thing that wasn't doing so well in the race kind of a you know it's cheating i guess you could say but it's like now they get a chance to sort of succeed um there ain't nothing wrong with that uv sterilizer i notice and a lot of people notice your the film the microalgae film in your glass becomes less of an issue when you run uv right um, I had sort of the opposite experience where I took my UV off my tank and I think that that allowed more success in the green microalgae space. So I started, I actually saw a positive net because 
that weird red turfy stuff that was growing on my rocks when you not my rocks but my crushed coral substrate when you came to visit gone after i pulled my uv so again i'm tweaking who's winning and who's losing right um are they related that to me pulling the uv i don't know but i pulled the uv i go to colorado to visit you i come back and the tank looks a little bit better now six months later maybe i regret that decision right and i want to put the uv back on but um i think they're all just tools and you just got to kind of tweak uh things i don't i don't yeah i i think you and i are coming at it from different angles because you like to keep things really clean you know like coral centric right like you're you're a pretty good bouncer on your reef tank on who gets to come in you uh you don't use a sand bed and i'm more like the old you know i like that bit of uh micro diversity um and that just seems to work for me so like I, I've said a million times, if I see a little turf algae on a return nozzle, I'm cool, right? That's it's when there's absolutely normal, even in the cleanest of tanks. Exactly. Um, I think this tank down here is being a little pain in the butt because there ain't no turf algae in the places the tanks can't get to, right? So, I don't know. That's it's all just um, levers that you're gonna pull. I feel like this session of reef therapy is probably one of the episodes is most re-listenable if you are having algae issues this is one of those sessions that's worth a couple listens because i guarantee you that if you use most or all of these tools hair algae will be a memory and it's one of those things you don't just wake up one day like, oh, my God, algae's gone. It's just, you know, a few weeks, a few months go by and they're like, oh, my God, all of a sudden my hair algae's gone. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a common problem and it goes back to overdoing it, right? We did a whole session overdoing it. It's one of the most important, most poignant topics I think I've ever covered in reef therapy and reef builders on YouTube. And it's just so important. Um, so yeah, this is an important one to, to, to really get out there. And, you know, as far as the UV sterilizer, the one thing that I will tell you is that a lot of service companies who really only visit a reef aquarium or saltwater aquarium once a week, maybe twice a week, they all, they're all going to use a UV sterilizer because they know it's going to knock everything back. Yeah. Right. You know, the aquarium service companies are like the shadow part of the reef aquarium industry, the saltwater aquarium industry that has like zero voice. <laughs> they really I really want to learn more about their t their tricks, because um, it's one of those things you see over and over and over again when fish only tanks, reef only tanks or fowlers are set up. Um, there's just there's a lot of ultraviolet sterilization being used by the uh, service community because they can only go out there once a week and you know for some high profile clients everything has to go very very well right but your point is also valid about removing the uv and encouraging a little bit more ecology to happen to where the competition just takes over what you didn't want to grow yeah, right. and I mean, to be fair, I had no idea this would happen, right? And I can't prove that the two things are corollary, but um, I, maybe the maybe the point I'm trying to make is 
it sometimes it's a little bit of experimentation to try to figure out you know what where where are you going to get your how are you going to be able to start to shift things to the point that you want right so um I love UV sterilizers. That's one thing that I never used, and I don't use it on this tank down here. But um, a properly functioning UV sterilizer has a lot of really strong benefits. Uh, and um, I just, uh, I I'm, I'm in a phase where I'm trying to remove a bunch of gadgets from my tank, right? Because, uh, again, my tank's at a point where things are sort of churning th- on their own now, autopilot, right? So now I kind of want to pull off a bunch of the gadgets and just uh, that's, to bring That's up- a great point. There's yeah. certain things that we do in the early stages of a reef tank, like go heavy on your, your herbivory, go heavy on your cleanup crew, go a little bit, you know, more methodical about your phosphate absorption or your carbon dosing. I, this whole session is just a guide. We have, I don't think we've left any stone unturned when it comes to how you can approach algae. But a lot of things we discussed can be temporary. Yeah. They can be in like initializing your reef tank. And then once you get to a certain point, you don't need so much cleanup group. A lot of it will die out. <laughs> Hopefully not the surgeon fish. Right. You don't need a ster- uh, UV sterilizer forever. You don't need ozone generator. You don't need GFO and all these little sh- tips and tricks forever, right? And so this is why I think that this particular session is worth a second listen for someone who's really trying to tackle the problem. Yeah, and listen to it while you're going medieval with some tweezers. And <laughs> yes! Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. Get that zen moment going. Not, not, not Pulp Fiction. Be a little more zen about it, right? But... Uh... <laughs> So, yeah, no, that's the the best outro I can think of. Mark, thank you for joining me on this session of Reef Therapy. I think we're both going to take a little bit of some break for a little bit, and we'll probably see you guys again in late August. And uh, thank you so much to all the fans for helping us get to our 50th episode. This is half a hundred. That's it crazy. sounds better when you say when you say half a hundred versus fifty, but uh, yeah, it's probably seventy five hours of listening if wow. you go through them all. And there's a couple of special episodes in there, so make sure to like us and rate us on your favorite podcatcher. If you're in New South Wales or Sydney, make sure to come see us at Reefsock Australia. Go to reefsock.show for more information. And uh, Mark and I will be back at it, uh, giving you some proper reef aquarium therapy at the end of the summer and uh until then we'll catch you guys on the next one yeah sounds good hey, we'll Mark. have a lot to talk about then too so that'll be cool i'm sure we will yeah all right all right Later, See you, buddy. Buddy.